0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, I'm Katya Beecham, co-founder and CEO of Birchbox. What I love about retail is humans smiling. That moment, whether it's the sales team or the customer, it just fills me up. A lot of companies are compared
1: to the innovators of their space the WeWork of such and such, the Casper of this, and the Birchbox of that. But when you're one of those companies, in this case, Birchbox, eventually the space will have those other players. How do you continue to grow, to be relevant, and innovate to stay a leader without going off mission? Coming up, the CEO of the very successful subscription beauty service, Birchbox, offers some great insights on how she has evolved with her company, how she thinks about retail, and why the journey toward a customer should never actually end, how the recently revamped subscription model that focuses on customer loyalty, despite criticism from some, is actually on mission and has been more successful than anticipated, what she learned about the physical store and the importance of passion from those who work there learning about agility from retail partners, creating the reality you want to live, and how one of the quickest ways to Tkachia's heart might just be if you know about food wrapped in food. From New York City, you're listening to Retail Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. everybody. My name is Rebecca Fitz from Warby Parker Real Estate uh, and Retail Expert. I'm here with my partner in crime, Chris Hansen. Hey, Rebecca. Hey. Um, And we are so excited to have on the show today Katia from Birchbox. Um, I want to dive right in. Um, Birchbox kind of has a rich history now. I'd love to talk about where you are today and then maybe we'll go backwards a little bit because I think people are, are so curious about Birchbox right this second.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So where Birchbox is today is nine years into an incredible journey of, I think, first and foremost, changing the beauty industry. But I I think we all agree, and I do feel that Birchbox has had an impact on commerce and retail overall, which is very humbling to experience. Um, But today we are in six countries. We have about 300 um, employees that are in those countries, millions of customers in those markets. And we're very focused on, um, I'd say, really standing for what we have believed for a really long time, but thinking long term about that and pursuing that with vigorous intention is what I'd say. And to put it simply, what we stand for is a consumer's right to have delight when they spend discretionary dollars. Um, We feel that we lose sight of that as consumers, as business owners, that whenever we spend money that is not a requirement to sustain us, that we deserve to have a great experience. We didn't need it. And um, what we realized at Birchbox from the very beginning, but we can go into this, it became a deeper insight as we went along, was that we, my co-founder and I at the time, and now I'm um, you know a, a solo founder, but started with two of us and a very close third after that, we had this experience of being people who didn't love beauty, but consumed it. And we're spending money on it. And we were kind of like, you know, why is it so difficult to feel smart when we spend our money here? We feel kind of confused. We feel like we have a lot of products we don't finish. This feels really inefficient and unenjoyable. And it's either kind of a rut or intimidating or just meh. And We recognized that um, that feeling that we had was probably a shared feeling, but what we didn't recognize was that every industry has an 80-20, right? This 80-20 rule where your top consumers spend so much more money than the average consumer that you end up building your entire user experience of an entire industry for the hyper-consumers, and that represents the minority of humans in the equation. And so what we learned, you know, kind of midway through the journey of Birchbox was that it was very true and authentic to us. And it was happening where we were over-indexing in a consumer who did not feel passionately about beauty or grooming, who was not obsessed, and who was surprised about their willingness to engage more in a category when an experience was more tailored to them. And We had tailored it based on what we thought our needs were. We invented a service based on what we felt, but we hadn't realized this idea of could we create a destination for the majority of consumers who have not been a priority of the industry. So, said more succinctly, we are focused on the casual beauty and grooming consumer who does not want to watch hours of tutorials about this, who do not want to browse the aisles of this, but who Does consume on average eleven products in every day routine between you know getting ready, and who we believe deserves to have a better experience. Also, what we've seen is after one year of being a part of Birchbox, that consumer is doubling their spend in the category, um, and feels happy. doing it so our thesis is that there is an opportunity to grow the beauty and grooming market via focusing on a consumer that has not been the traditional priority helping them stay somewhat passive in their experience but consume like an active consumer
2: so how did you how did you make that change so you said that there was a change of the the very specific consumer yeah. to and and please correct me if i'm misstating this to to a, a broader consumer
0: no, I don't think that was it. I mean, I'd say when we started Birchbox, we said this is a hard category to shop for us. On top of that, it's a very challenging category to shop online. So the basic realization being, again, from our perspective, the beauty industry is launching on average a million products a year. Just insane to think about. And um, so on in any given store, when you walk in, there's between 20,000 and 300,000 SKUs on the floor, depending on if you're in a smaller specialty store to a department store. So we felt that this volume of choice was intimidating to some segment of consumers. And then we felt that the problem of the decision set was exacerbated when you got on the internet. So at least in four walls, it's contained. So what we really saw was an opportunity to say, how could we give the beauty industry the potential of selling on the internet? Um, given this problem of the proliferation of choice. So we said, in order to sell beauty products on the internet, we need to limit the choices. Um, And we also need to overcome the thing that we recognized about the internet, which is the need to try that was inherent to beauty. So people were utilizing stores and samples and things like that to have the experience of trial. So when we started Birchbox, the thesis was very much around figure out how to sell beauty on the internet, because in 2009, 2% of sales were on the internet. And we hypothesized that that 2% was replenishment. For an industry that launches a million SKUs a year, if the only game you're getting on the internet is replenishment, you're missing out, right? And so our inherent thinking was the reason this is happening was friction, right? There's friction in discovery. There's so many choices. There's all of these steps to feel like you are going to spend money and feel good and As we, you know, worked to design the product, have launched the product, and then did more consumer research, what we realized is that it's really friction if it's not something you love, right? If it's a passion and a hobby, discovery is joyous spending the time. But for, call it 70% of the market where that's not your passion, not your hobby, the lack of, I mean, the friction that exists in every step of getting in front of product to learning and getting reviews to actual trial to purchase, that means that you end up hearing for most people, for most consumers, what we always hear is that they've been doing the same thing for 10 to 30 years. And you really came full circle because you you came back to who you were as a customer.
1: You knew you wanted to buy beauty products, but you didn't want to go through all the hubba that... That comes along with it. Right.
0: And I think it's natural for consumers to want to feel smart. Right. And there's something about beauty, um, about this idea of a product graveyard that most consumers can relate to, where you open your cabinet and you see all the money that you've spent and <laughs> things that you're not using. Or you look in your shower and you see three bottles of eight dollar shampoo that could have been one dollar bottle of $40 shampoo, right? And you see it. And so that kind of keeps reinforcing in your brain like. Maybe I'll just stick with what I think works. Um,
1: right. And and this kind of launches into, I think, and there's been a lot said on this, and I think you all were really pioneers in this category. But what has the journey been on learning about subscription and the subscription model? Yeah. Um, because, again, that does kind of dictate now I know what I like right. and I'm having it sent to me. Um, and I'm sure there are many other nuances in between.
0: Well, you know, that raises a really important question. When Birchbox launched, and yes, we were a pioneer, we launched, I think, a, a few months after Shoe Dazzle, um, you know, subscription commerce started to become a really big topic of conversation in commerce. And to me, that, I think, confused the market a bit because it, asked, it I think, made two mistakes in the classification. One is that subscription commerce is a business model. It's revenue. Subscription is a revenue <laughs> model. There's no business model in subscription. And two, it, act as, it acts as though subscription is one thing and subscription is not one thing. It is a revenue tactic that can be utilized to explore many different things. And so most traditional subscription that we can all think about is a model where you are purchasing the thing you want on a re- recurring basis. So like a magazine subscription, you know you're getting the magazine, even a wine, the, wine of the month, fruit of the month. It's a subscription, so your revenue is locked in and you're getting the thing you subscribe to. Then we have a subscription that we all know about today, which is replenishment. That's you know a model, a business um, model to get consumers to have more loyal behavior, and it utilizes subscription to kind of make it seamless and low friction. And then there's Birchbox, which is a totally different experience where subscription is one of our revenue models, and it is the appetizer to... The entree of the full size purchase. So, in our case, we're using a subscription as a tool to generate demand, but it is not the tool to give you what you need to consume, right? Because the samples are small, and the you know you you could not only exist you can if you run a game in sure mm-hmm. <laughs> only okay. exist on samples. But our business model is about generating the demand with a subscription. And then capturing the demand through more traditional retail, including Birchbox, now Walgreens, and also a lot of other retailers that sell the same products as we do. We know that we are creating demand for that, that there's leakage, and that has grown everyone's business. And there's actually been a lot of studies to show how Birchbox has also grown Sephora and Alta.
2: I I was thinking about, I feel like Birchbox is the example used for subscription companies. It's like the birch box of just like Casper <clears throat> of yeah. the We Work of
1: <laughs> It's yes, a compliment the by Parker, the way. Uh, exactly. Yeah, the one we uh, so so, amazing Yeah. Well let me let me <laughs> let
2: me challenge that. Is 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 it a blessing or a curse to oh, be always... the the birch box to be the example by which everything is is compared to.
0: It's a great question. I mean I think obviously as a founder, this was my first company that's a humbling reality to have had an impact on the market. On the other hand, I'd say that it oversimplifies and kind of miscategorizes a lot of things that can be a challenge as you're trying to raise above the fray of the consumer conversation and stand for something and show how much depth there is to your thinking, how much depth there is to how you want to design the user experience. It can kind of make it all seem so, you know superficial and so, um, you know similar.
2: I was saying subs is a, is a revenue type versus or a revenue a model, model versus then then yeah it's it feels right. like it like does for me, trivialize I, it.
0: I don't believe birchbox has to forever in the world be a company that has a subscription what i believe is that there is an opportunity to serve 70 percent of consumers who is who are not the priority of the beauty and grooming industry and that this is an amazing tool to do that because of the ability to allow that consumer to stay passive in discovery but trust me if i had another tool that i thought was more relevant i would be very open to pursuing a different pathway so in my opinion our business is very focused around how do we how do we become the go to for the casual beauty and, and grooming consumer you know in perpetuity not Like, how do I stay a subscription business? And it really has gotten
1: confused on the way. And I've done when it was really booming. I said, oh, let me try some of these. And all of a sudden, you know, you do a workout wear one. You've got a drawer that's ready to burst. <sighs> you actually can't keep up with it while I think it's much more applicable. To the
0: products you consume. Absolutely. Yeah, like beauty in, and in, food. and
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you yeah. mentioned some of the traditional ones. Well, you know, I'm I'm on the physical side of the business. Um I've been to the Birchbox store many times. I think I brought some retail wonks there to tour it. Um and you certainly you've been on this 9-year journey. What were some of your learnings from having a physical space?
0: So we started talking about the thing I love about retail, which is humans and smiling and this interaction that you cannot have in digital which is seeing the impact that your service, experience, brand, however you want to think about it, could have on a consumer's day. And when we went into physical as a digital first company, I think that we had this expectation of how would digital be a part of it. And we focused a lot thinking about how would digital be a part of it, how would these algorithms that we worked to use and to guide consumers online be utilized in a store, And of course, we did the work of thinking about who would be working in the store, who would manage the store, what the training be. But it wasn't until having a store and seeing, you know, the humans um, that it, it just hit us. And it hit me really hard that nothing matters other than who works in that store and their passion for what you're doing and for who you're doing it for. Nothing matters. I mean, there could just be boxes on the floor of stuff. But when you have someone who cares about the consumer, they know. They know. And in the way that you spend all of this time as a founder and as a management team getting your corporate team to care, right? Because that out caring someone is the only way to win. It is the only way. There's no barrier to entry. Do not kid yourself. Out caring is the only way. And you spend so much time on that. And I think learning that all of that was not only like is just beyond necessary to give to the teams in store and how do you do that and how do you change an entire mentality around like hourly teams having that kind of passion for who they serve and obviously we've all experienced it i mean you go get a cup of coffee from someone who likes making coffee or you go get a cup of coffee from someone who wants to doesn't want to be there and we all know and we're just having an amazing experience because someone cares about you in that moment and they seem to care about their work. And that just as humanity, right? Like it feels so great.
1: And it feels like you were almost pioneering there. I mean, I know lots of people who have done stores and what they learned, but this was not one the answer I thought I would <laughs> hear. And number two is, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, the sales ambassador and how important that is to the physical space. And what you're saying is that it's everything. And it's I, everything. I, I will say when I've been in the store, the enthusiasm for The way it's merchandised, what the actual product is that someone's tried it really does exude from from everyone in there.
0: And and by the way, I mean, and our pursuit of creating, you know, companies and creating these new experiences, like why wouldn't we also want to come out in the world and create more work that feels purposeful for everybody? Right? Like who doesn't want to go to work and feel like they are a part of something? And and you know. There are so many ways to be a part of something and there's so many different types of businesses and obviously nonprofits and for-profits. And I think about that a lot, about how do we spend our time to make the world better. But I've come to a personal conclusion that being able to focus on how can you give people exceptional work experiences because we deserve it. We spend so much time and We can. We can. We can 100% help people feel more connected to the work. We can help them understand why it matters to us and as an organization. And we can help them understand how it is so fulfilling to have that experience of meeting a consumer and having that interaction and having a relationship versus having a transaction. It's good for everybody. um, But it also feels good. And, you know, nine years after doing something that long, you start to think a lot about, well, what keeps me motivated? Right? What keeps me want to go hard and make this as successful as possible, and it's the ability to have the biggest impact possible on the most people's careers, because why not? Uh, So we have a tradition on the show where we
1: ask our guests to bring a snack, uh, and it's a great way, one, just to to break bread together. Um, And number two, uh, usually there's some insight or a nice story behind the snack. We just got some insight into you as a snacker. Um, And so we'd love to hear about what you brought today and why.
0: Okay. So as I was saying, I'm not a huge snacker. I am a big meal person. I love a meal. I have three or four of them a day. If I double up, it's breakfast always because I want a breakfast sandwich and I also might want cereal later. Um, So I don't love a snack. I never have. But my children, obviously, you say a snack, you put it in a bag. Kids love it if it's in a bag. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, And my older kids are five-year-old twins um, and they love family movie night. And part of the reason they love family movie night is popcorn. Um, They really love it so much. And so I brought kettle corn. How can you not hate it? It's the most delicious varietal, right? Yep. A little salty, a little sweet. One of my faves. So let us share it. And I do <laughs> like it.
2: It's good. It's good. So uh, breakfast sandwich, what are we talking? Bacon, egg, and cheese? Or are we okay. talking something healthy? I'm,
0: no, definitely not healthy. How could a breakfast sandwich be healthy? Um, I, love it, uh, I love a New York Deli bacon, egg, and cheese, but I also will love, like, a little bit more thoughtful of a breakfast sandwich. So right now, what I'm really vibing on, and I highly recommend, and you're really close by it, is Italy has an unknown panini bar breakfast sandwich that will make your head explode. And it has a PLT, add the eggs, with pancetta oh. and arugula and deliciously considered tomatoes and also amazing bread. So... Wow, that's highly recommend. the insider dirt right there on...
2: Needley breakfast sandwich. Oh, sandwich. oh please
0: don't make it so busy that the line's...
2: <laughs> 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 I love that it's a secret. Exactly. Well, well, it's just where less, do you it's in the middle. So okay. you
0: can get it at the coffee place right on, on 5th, but you can order it there, but then you have to walk to the back by the rotisserie chicken, also delicious. And it's the only part open early.
2: Thank you. Oh, I didn't, so, yeah, I didn't well, know
0: the was open. the so, one on 23rd. Yeah, the one on 23rd, the coffee opens at 7 a.m. and so does the panini bar. So.
1: Good to know. When
0: you have the first bite, you're going to think about this moment and think, I like her. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes wherever the best podcasts are found.
2: So you talked a lot about connecting with the customer directly. And in a lot of conversations we've had on this show, the change in physical space has come up organically. Retail is changing. The way that people engage in brick and mortar spaces is changing. The partnership that you have with Walgreens, is that a way to more broadly connect with folks? Is is that part of the strategy of having that direct connection to the customer?
0: 100 percent. When you think about who is the customer of Walgreens, hopefully what comes to mind is everybody. Um, And so definitely our everyday beauty consumer is there. And also what we know about the casual beauty and grooming consumer is that they are today more likely to be purchasing at mass regardless of household income. So because beauty isn't a priority, not making an additional trip to go purchase it is common. Um, So yes, 100% part of that partnership is to go and find that customer where they are. But to your point, the decision on how we partnered and being very present in the physical space was about making these connections. I think one of the big opportunities we see in going for a different target consumer that is less enamored with the category is the opportunity to have a sticky relationship and One of the challenges that I'm sure we can all relate to is building a relationship with somebody that you've never really had an interaction with is possible, but it has more challenges, right? Having to state your intention and make sure that people understand what are you, what is your ambition for the relationship is more difficult in this environment of a traditional digital and what we've learned through our small tests and having retail, we by no means have like a big rollout is that after we have these in-person physical interactions, every interaction on digital is better. Right. And so there is a scalability to having some physical um, places to meet the customer. In addition to that, obviously being a place where you can sell goods, which is awesome. It also has implications on your ability to have a sticky, more loyal customer digitally. And we all know that. I mean, the LTV trends of somebody who was multi-channel, we all know is really exceptional, really compelling. And as the market has really changed, you know, one thing we didn't talk about with Birchbox is that in the early days of Birchbox when social media, I mean, imagine this felt somewhat nascent, it was possible to get quite a bit of organic engagement with consumers. But with the increase in content and the, you know, yes, there's an increase in eyeballs, but not matching the increase in content. That opportunity to even get in front of consumers is more and more challenging, more and more expensive. And I think everybody's looking for a place to diversify, but there's the added benefit of diversifying in a place that has the potential of generating a loyal, high-value consumer if you know how to create that kind of flywheel.
2: Are you able to connect those dots between uh, physical space and digital space? Is that something with the Walgreens relationship you can do?
0: Yes, absolutely. That's 100% something we can do. The great thing is is that without a lot of lift, that's something we can do, right? Because they have a loyalty program that has identifying data and we have you know, identifying data and we can use a third party to do that. Um, but yes. So we're able to show that, for example, Birchbox has had a significant impact on new not just, I mean, we've had a material impact on the sales in our, in our space, but on new consumers who were not prior to that purchasing beauty within a Walgreens. Um, so we can see that, and we can see, obviously, the more traditional things.
2: Do you see a trend here? Do you see this where you have these direct brands like Birchbox partnering in the physical space and connecting? I mean, it or... would be
0: crazy not to, even in thinking about it and how we were doing it before. The idea that we should all build every single core competency in-house is seems difficult, right? For everybody to do that and everyone to reinvent that. I mean, I think why wouldn't we leverage other core competencies in order to accelerate um, learnings and to find like true one plus one equals hopefully seven, right? So I think, yes, I I would expect that you see more of it. On the other hand, I think one of the reasons that you don't is because the the speed at which you can move when you're just trying to do something yourself is different, right? On the other hand, I think one of the learnings that we've had that's been really difficult is that building up that competency like in parallel to execution can create – A very, very challenging situation where you're, you know, basically spending far ahead of when you're actually ready to actually launch something. Um, And there's, it's been so wonderful to do it this way, I'd say, having done it both ways, because of the shared motivation for it to be successful is huge. And I'd say in the case of Walgreens, like management and their actual openness and desire to be challenged, to think differently, to do it, you know, a different way. That has been really great to see. Um, And then the fact that you know, we have no idea how to build fixtures. We have no immediate contacts to see how to cost engineer them. We, you know, don't know what's going to last three years in this much traffic. And they can just like easily, quickly, you know, think about that if we want to do something um, faster. They have an idea immediately if we want to roll out a training or a new incentive to all of the um, – you know, people that are working and talking about Birchbox, they know exactly how to do that. They have a plan for that. There's immediate scale. So we're going from 6 to 12 to being in 500 doors in Holiday. We just rolled out subscriptions in 3,000 doors um, just with a small incentive, an easy lift. I mean, by no means my team, obviously, would kill me with saying it's it's not simple. I mean, we are learning to operate within entirely different kinds of organization. But when there is a motivation on both sides and when both sides can appreciate, like, this could be really game-changing for both of us, a lot of the friction is just very manageable. And then you're actually, I think, um, really mitigating risk. And that feels like a very nice way of doing it.
1: I uh, know. No, no par- partners are good. Um, you made mention at, at the, um, the beginning of the show, and I'm not sure if you can share this, but um, that there might be some more changes coming. Anything mm-hmm. um, immediate that we could hear about now and, and w- where, where physical
0: retail might go for you all? I mean, we're, we are really encouraged by what we're seeing in these first doors. Um, I think our expectation is that there's an opportunity to to accelerate um, more physical, assuming that we see it, you know, obviously continuing to really increase sales for, for Walgreens, as well as having the benefit of um, increasing sales for our partners, for our own brands. We have own brands that we develop in Birchbox. And then also you know, subscriptions as an acquisition channel for subscriptions. So right now it seems like what we're seeing early days is super interesting when you think about the potential scale. So yes, I think we are definitely thinking about more and we have the ability to do it somewhat quickly versus on our own. And then as it relates to the subscription in our core product, um, this year we changed the pricing structure of our product to have a more direct conversation with consumers about the relationship, let's say that way. So we we really felt that um, we'd been creating a very similar product for a long time. We had a lot of insights about this casual consumer. We wanted to invest more in the product, but we had never raised our, co- our prices um, nine years. And there had been a lot of cost changes in the business. I mean, shipping alone, I think we all know. Um, so we made a really challenging decision and a big decision this year to say we're going to tier pricing based on basically customer loyalty. So if you are a subscriber who shops with us and kind of hit the threshold we call aces, price stays the same. We're investing a lot more. The cogs are much higher. And then kind of if you commit to six months, price is lower. If you commit to 12 months, price is lower. And if you just want the ability to cancel any time, which has always been the case with cable or anything, price is higher, you know, a lot higher. So we, we launched that, and that has really helped us talk about the intention we have of improving the experience and talking to customers about why we really want to improve the experience. Here are the ways we're improving the experience. But to be really honest, and the results have been amazing. We're like It's so amazing to see that retention can improve when you raise your price. Um, but I'd say that this is very 1.0 in terms of us thinking about the evolution that needs to happen to the, for the product. So first, we had to understand... Can we raise the price? Because we knew that in order to pursue our vision of long-term you know, changes in the relationship we want with consumers, we're going to have to invest more um, into the infrastructure. And now that we've like validated this piece of the test, then you will see us redefining what a subscription could be. I think Birchbox has sat, really stood for one way of engagement for consumers. And we obviously believe that there's a lot of different ways that could evolve.
2: As it being a, a single parent CEO now, <laughs> has that changed your role dramatically, uh, your feelings about leading the company, not having a co-CEO?
0: I mean, this has been the most transformative, rewarding, horrible, you know, just enlightening experience of my life in every way you could imagine. I think... Um, you Lots know, there, of superlatives. The reason, bad. the reason I say horrible is because I think that it feels very personal. You know, you said like a parent, right? It does. It feels like, you know, your baby. So even one negative comment on Instagram could send me in a real tailspin, let alone, you know, a board member like saying something challenging or feeling like an employee was upset, like. A a stranger being frustrated by their shipping time could just, like, really – it feels very personal. You feel like you're failing. Um, But what I'd say very related to that is that, you know, having started this business a lot younger nine years ago um, and having in my mind a view of what it would feel like to succeed, quote, unquote, I think that one of the most wonderful gifts this experience has given me is – a new view on what success is and what it looks like and feels like to be winning. And I think for me, it's very simple. I lived my life at the very early days in the first few years at Birchbox, believing that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And my opinion is that is just a bad way to live life because you No matter how much success you have had, and Birchbox has had a lot of success, yes, challenges, but so much success, it never feels bright enough. And once I realized that the game is to be in the tunnel and to make your own light and to be somebody who's comfortable in the darkness and happy and, you know, finding that in yourself versus living for this, you know, someday reality, I, I mean, it's the biggest gift in life you know and recognizing that when you when you only think that that is the only way to define success you will never feel successful you'll never feel whole because it's always the next thing it's never big enough um and i just don't think that that you know is the way i want to live every day so starting to recognize and see the everyday wins has been transformative. Um, And for me, that is in looking at people and how their careers have transformed, have opportunities in front of them have transformed and how that will impact their careers and hopefully how they then impact other people's careers. And so hopefully my kids can go to work one day um, and have somebody who cares about their careers. You know, I think that is a really wonderful thing to be experiencing every day. And I know that that will have an impact that you know, makes the company successful. But living for these like arbitrary targets of size and you know, all of these events that people tell you mean success for me, I didn't feel the happiness
1: you're enjoying the journey. I'm a little enjoying more. it
0: so much more. <laughs> um, I really am, and I feel so appreciative for the experience of it. Like I feel appreciative to the consumer for letting us have a chance to create this reality. I feel appreciative to the talent for bringing it to me to learn, to have the opportunity to shape. I just feel every day gratitude for this opportunity to swing for it. Um, And I feel like that is what feels successful. Like I can't believe I have a job where I get to swing. That is so cool. Um, How can I give more people a job where they get to swing? where okay, they get to meet themselves, where they get to see what's possible. And when they get to realize that everything is possible, like that has been such a gift to realize you can invent reality. And if I can help more people recognize that they can too, then I feel like I'm winning.
1: You talked a lot about building teams and that you're you're on this journey. How have you, how has the experience of building teams changed over the last nine years and, um, what have, what are the challenges and, and what are the opportunities?
0: I mean, the people part of it is by far the hardest, by far the best. Um, the most fulfilling, most rewarding part is when you feel like, you know, you're getting it right. And the biggest challenge is that it's a moving living thing, um, that is always changing with the context of the world around people and what people's expectations are. I, I think, um, I think similar to, I mean, myself when I started Birchbox, like this this um, belief I had, which I now believe is a fallacy that anybody has answers, like all the answers, that there's ideas that somebody that you could bring in is going to have answers um, would probably be the biggest shift, I think, not because there isn't so much talent. There's so much talent. But now what I recognize is that, you know, Nobody has the answer. Everybody has the answer. There is no answer. But what does it look like to find leaders and that understand um, their role in helping set targets and helping lead people towards them and helping adjust things with context for their team and lead people towards, you know, next targets as things change? Um, so who really think about, um, I would say, like empowerment versus delegation. Like, how do they create agency? And that does very much mimic and mirror my experience as a leader and my biggest mistakes, which is misunderstanding the difference, which is so monumental between delegation and empowerment. Actually giving people the ability to fail is a critical part of creating engagement at your organization and actually creating agency at your organization. And it's challenging because – no matter how far you go in your career, you still are kind of programmed, I think, as humans to judge yourself as an individual contributor, right? And like it's, it's a huge shift to stop thinking about yourself as an individual contributor and to start thinking about yourself as am I a leader, not who gets it right, but who creates an environment for people to meet themselves and to really take ownership, Do I create an environment where people have ownership? I would say I'm still on that journey. But that to me is a big shift is going from like kind of looking for individual contributors, people who can solve the problem and here's the problem to saying like I'm looking for people who create environments that give their team agency, who are excellent at giving context but who do not take away um, this true feeling of it's on me. I think at the end of the day, people do come to startups for the same reason that I wanted to start a company. I think it's to meet yourself and to see what you're capable of, which is scary as heck. can't curse, right? You can curse. Oh, yeah. I was going to say scary (laughs) as fuck. (laughs) Um, It's so scary to meet yourself. It's so scary to be confronted every day with the fact that you are imperfect. Um, But it is the most rewarding experience to get to know yourself because that allows you to then understand how to, you know, balance your own capabilities with the people that you're working with. Um, It gives you so much self-awareness not to take on things that aren't going to be, you know, best suited for you. It's the biggest gift anyone can give to anyone, right? And I think that it's just so natural for high performers to almost take that away because they don't want – their people to fail because that's a failure on them instead of saying, you know, this is a part of the journey is making sure that people have both the wins and the failures and that they're able to then adjust and get up and keep going. Um, So it's been... You know, it's still a journey I'm on. Absolutely.
1: I was just talking to someone who went from uh, Goldman Sachs into a startup environment, and we had very – and I was certainly not at a Goldman Sachs before, but I was at a developer. And I said, you're at a developer. You're expected to know all the answers. You're supposed to make your number. You're expected to ship. Same at Goldman Sachs. And then you go into these amazing startup environments where – you find the answer together um, uh, or you, you give people the freedom to do that and um,
0: you, I, it's, it's eye-opening. I think one of the things that you know, I really believe and this is a very personal thing is you invent the answer together. There's this idea that there's an answer. You invent it. You pick it. You get people behind it. You can create reality. And once people see their potential in creating reality, they could just invent something and rally people behind it. And you can also see when it fails, when you invent something and you didn't do the job of communication and how does it come through the organization? How does it touch the customer? It doesn't land. Same thing, well communicated, well orchestrated, well, like when people are really behind it, lands. You know, I think showing people not just that we will get to unanswer together, but actually we will choose the answer. We will pursue it. We will succeed at that answer. And, I mean, there's just so much you can do when people believe that. Hi, I'm Roseanne Gold. I'm a chef, an author, a food writer, and the host of a new podcast called One Woman Kitchen. So excited to be doing this because I'm interviewing the most fascinating women in the food world and you don't even have to be interested in the food world or be part of it to enjoy these remarkable women's stories it's diverse it's international it's intergenerational what's most exciting to me is that the concept of one woman kitchen means something different for everyone you can listen to one woman kitchen every week at one woman kitchen show.com and also where all the best podcasts can be found
2: So, Katya, what's your favorite thing about Poughkeepsie, New York?
0: Oh, um, that's easy. The proximity to the CIA as well as Adams Grocery Store. Not the Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> um, the chef school.
2: The James Beard uh, yes, school. Yes,
0: it's so cool. You can um, tour the campus, and it means there's a lot of great restaurants that are pretty affordable in the area. I love food. Food has always been a big passion in life. And being able to see how great chefs are learning about it, Um I've always loved, And then Adam's Grocery Store is just this one. So you were
2: going to the CIA when you were at Vassar? Yeah. (laughs) Interesting.
0: Yeah, because loved food, and that was such a great place to, I don't know, be surrounded by people who loved food. Yeah.
1: And I'd say you already gave us one food secret, but how about one more?
0: One food secret? Yeah.
1: Maybe on the dinner or the lunch, you know, since you already gave us a breakfast. Okay.
0: Um... (laughs) Trying to give something really special that's not, well, so my favorite food is always food wrapped in food. So I should start there. Um, A taco, an empanada, even a ravioli type of tortellini. Um, So that is my passion is food wrapped in food. My favorite restaurant in New York um, is Momofuku Noodle Bar. Can't get a reservation, which I kind of love. Still? Yeah, never. You can't. I mean, there's no reservations. You got to wait. Yeah. That makes the food taste better. Um, And it's been around forever, but I still believe it is one of the most delicious, fun meals. And I'll tell you another thing. Actually, someone asked me um, what was like a company that I really admired and aspired to in terms of culture. And I highly recommend going to either Noodle Bar or Sambar. It, I haven't been to all of them and and done the same thing. But to watch the way the staff works together, it is it is beautiful. It is poetic. It is nothing short of watching like a symphony unfold of people who have individual jobs but who care about working together and who always have each other's back. Um, the fact that you will after like 10 years of going there often see the same people is insane the quality is amazing but just watching the joy that this the team has working there but also the fluidity right there's a bartender and he will sometimes give the drinks but also sometimes the waitress will come by and pick it up and or the waitress will sometimes bust something and they're bust. i mean it is it is so inspiring for humanity i think to watch like that happen and just experience how the quality has stayed so true um and i just obviously love the flavors I
2: think high-end restaurants are the litmus test. They should be the litmus test for retailers. I I do think when you are at a great restaurant with great service, I have the same thing with Gramercy Tavern in New York, Mm -hmm. um, where the last time I was there, I don't go there often, always for special occasions. They remembered it was my wife's birthday without us telling them, and they brought out a dessert, and I just was shocked at how great the the customer experience was there, mm-hmm. and I I rarely see that. I see it at restaurants, right. I rarely see that in retail, and I just wonder. Retail has so many more tools, right. And and There's yet so much data, so much, and
0: it also feels daunting. I think in some ways it feels so daunting to be like, well, how could we capture everything and organize it and know everyone? But that's one example. But the momofuka example, which is, you know, it's high end, but it's not fancy, right? Like they have chairs that are uncomfortable. Everyone's crammed together. And, you know, there's kind of this like lack of ceremony around the order that your food will come out. And yet, right, the thoughtfulness of it and the experience of being around a staff that, cares about your experience, even though they might not know your name, even though they might not know your order, they care about your experience, they care that, you know, that these things are happening in a way that makes you feel a part of this. It's possible even in this like anonymous way, right? It's so repeatable in the way they do it, right? I don't see any data happening. They have a high standard. They care. And there seems to be obviously an emphasis on training and on getting people to to really care about this customer experience. But I totally agree. You know, we're thinking about these, like, cartwheels and lighting things on fire and champagne that has to happen (laughs) in retail. But, like, what if someone just cared about you? What if someone wasn't trying to make a sale in that moment? What if they just cared about you? I mean, I the money would just fall out of my pockets. I Can you imagine what it would feel like to just walk into a store and when someone didn't just ask you, like, may I help you? I mean, I just, that question, I, that question is the most ridiculous question in beauty. That's the example of almost like why we started Birchbox. Imagine walking onto a floor of 50,000 SKUs and someone asking that question to you. I mean, it's it's useless. It's a use. I mean, it's, it, is, it makes most people feel like, I don't even know. that. May, I don't know. Can you help this? I don't know. You know, that's just a – it just feels ridiculous. And I feel like we can do better.
1: We always ask uh, every guest – uh, for your final thoughts um, over the, the show or just final thoughts on, on retail on what's happening now
0: my current thought which will never be final <laughs> thinker um, you're in the tunnel I'm in the tunnel I'm very just I'm very focused on creating a reality I want to live and I want to invite more people to the party you know I want to spend energy in that way whether in the small ways and in the big ways
1: Amazing. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to get you?
0: Katia at Birchbox.com.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for, for being on today. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another great guest. I'm Rebecca Fitz signing off. And thanks to Chris Hansen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. This has been Retail is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcastmouthmedianetwork.com. At Thank you for listening.
2: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.